So dear Lord, we just come to you this evening and we just pray that uh, the few of us that are here in this room, uh, we're gathered here for the purpose of studying your word more and knowing it more and really understanding the depths of which you want us to understand this so that we can be better disciples in your name. So we just give you thanks and glory for allowing us to come together in this room without any form of persecution. And we just pray that we will utilize this moment in time together to really be the best disciples we can and to grow and learn in, you, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So now that we're here, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. And today I'm going to knock two, uh, two things off of your reading list. So the first two days, we're going to cover the entirety of it today. So we're going to read Luke 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 80. So as you get yourself acquainted there, I'll be hitting up some coffee. So what I'm going to do is I'm basically going to break it down into little passages. We'll read like five, maybe six verses at a time, and then kind of talk about what's going on in those verses. Uh, when I <clears throat> initially set out to do this, I thought I could cover through Luke 1 in like 10 or 15 minutes. And then I realized there was just way too much symbolism and goodness going on in here. I have this little journal Bible, and if you just look on the sides and all the letters and stuff going on, that's just from, that's just from this. So uh, you're going to get a lot of information tonight. So hopefully that helps you in your journey. So if you're at Luke 1, we're going to start here at the very beginning. And the first four verses are an introduction to the book. Uh, it's basically introducing... The Gospel of Luke, right? So, let's read along with this. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have a certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So um, right here, this may seem jarring or a little strange. If you're familiar later on with like the books of Acts, or, sorry, the books of Paul later on, uh, he, he goes in and he usually introduces the book before he goes any further. So Luke is doing kind of the same thing here. He's, he's outlining what he in, intends to do with this book. Um, so as I said before, Luke has a sequel. It's the book of Acts. They're both written by St. Saint Luke, Saint Luke, and they're estimated to have been written around... A.D. 62, so sometime around 60 years after Jesus died. Um, here in this first little portion, he's telling us why he's writing it and who he's writing it to. Uh, we know a few things about Luke. We know he's a beloved physician uh, because Apostle Paul mentions that in Colossians 4.14. And we also know that he's a Gentile because it is mentioned in Philemon 1.24. And we know that he spent time with Paul alone and on his endeavors because he's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.11 and Acts 11 and 16. So we know that while he was not an original eyewitness of Jesus, what we do know is that he's been hanging out with Paul, and he's been hanging out with the other Christians. And so what he's doing is he's compiling their stories like how a documentarian or a historian would do it. He's putting it all together for this man named Theophilus, which you don't know much about, but he must have been somebody who was high-ranking at that time, uh, hence the word most excellent Theophilus. So what he's doing is he's putting together this account of the gospel from all these different sources that he's pulled together to present it to Theophilus, but then also to the early church, because at the time there was not a written account of the gospel. So this is the first, sort of one of the first four, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
and these are all being written around the same time to be distributed to early Christians. So here, we're seeing what his intentions are, and we know that he is met with other Christians, especially Paul and some of the people who surround Paul to get these stories, and then also he's been under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. And as we go further into this, we'll see just how much the Holy Spirit plays into Luke. It might be one of the main themes of Luke, because in Acts, the Holy Spirit comes into fruition, and so it's sort of setting up the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit's continuation. So we have both of those things going on here. So there's something interesting to note before we read anything else. In Israel, there's been 400 years since the last written prophecies or words or signs from God, right? So the last thing we know is there's a book called Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. And that was written around 516 B.C., which is before Christ, right? And the only reason why we know that is because he mentions the temple after it's been reconstructed. So when we put that together in there, we realize that there has been no prophetic nature going on for 400 years. So for 400 years between there and now, no one's heard from God, right? God has been just missing, essentially. Now, the Jews are used to this. They've had plenty of time in the dry lands and things where they've been accustomed to to time intervals between when God hears it, but it's very monumental because there's been nothing. So now we're hearing the first words come from God, right, in 400 years. So let's go to Luke 1, and we'll read 5, I think through 24. This is the portion we're going to read, but we'll take it in small increments here first. So in verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So uh, a few things to note. Zechariah is a priest of the division of Abijah. And then we also have Elizabeth, who is his wife, who is associated with the daughters of Aaron. So if you remember, Aaron is brother of Moses. So they're both descendants from that lineage there. Um, Some things about the priest, right? Um, It was estimated at the time there was about 8,000 priests living in Palestine. So he was one of 8,000. The priests were divided according to an arrangement first instituted 1,000 years earlier under King David. And then they were reconstituted as 24 divisions after the Babylonian occupation. Uh, So in just his division uh, of Abijah, sorry, not Abijah, I said it wrong earlier, um, there are 300 priests. So he's one of 300 in his division. Okay, so he served for one week, two one-week periods at the temple. And here's where it gets interesting. Uh, 56 priests were chosen by lot to participate each day. But only one priest would be chosen for the incense, and they would only be chosen once in their life, if they got chosen. They would only be chosen one time, and that's it. Their name would be written down. They would never be able to be chosen again. So Zechariah is in is an interesting situation, as we read further down, we'll see from there. Uh, and then back to Elizabeth. Uh, she is his wife. She is a daughter of Aaron, so she's a descendant of Aaron. And they both were righteous before God, which means that they kept the commandments and the laws. But they had a problem, which was that she was barren, uh, and they were both older, right? So she was unable to have children, and they were older. 
And at the time, that was uh, seen as a very, very big problem. If you were not able to have children, uh, then that was basically seen as God had disgraced you or moved you aside. He was saying that you were not worthy of having children. So for two people to be righteous and then also to be of priestly order and not to be able to have a child was a huge problem. And so we'll keep reading from there. So in verse 8, it says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside the hour of incense. So here we go. um, Zechariah is serving in the temple, and he gets chosen to go inside the temple and lay out the incense. All right, so this is his one-time chance to actually do this, this ceremony, which is, which is huge. And casting lots is similar to how we would like randomly do things, like if we were to throw stones in and one was chosen. Uh, just in the time period, it was considered to be uh, from God. And actually, God does not say anywhere in the Bible that he does not approve of this. So here's a few examples of where lots were used when they would cast lots. Uh, there was a selection of the scapegoat, which comes from Leviticus 16, 8 through 10. Uh, there was the allocation of tribal inheritance in the promised land, which comes from Numbers 26, 55, and Judges 1 through 3. Um, there was a order of priests and their duties, which comes from 1 Chronicles 24, 5 through 19, and Nehemiah 10, 34. And there's also the determination of an offender, uh, which comes from Proverbs 18, 18. Uh, here in Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So we know that him being chosen is a divine intervention from God. He was chosen specifically for this time and this moment. Uh, here's another few examples uh, that are pretty good. Uh, in Acts 1.26, this is probably my favorite, uh, they drew lots from them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So in Acts, after Judas Iscariot has killed himself, uh, they needed to replace him with another apostle. And so they drew lots. And when they did so, it fell on Matthias, and he became the 12th apostle. And there's only one other apostle after that, and that is Apostle Paul. So there's the 13 that you got there. Um, and then there's a few other things in Psalms 22:18. It says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I have a lot more, and I'll have notes and stuff. If you want to look at them, you can certainly do so. So we know that lots are important. And we also know that the daily routine of what he was doing by, by giving incense was also important. So here's two things that are going on. He is at the temple. He's doing this tent, the incense ceremony. And he's been chosen by Lot. So it's a divine moment that comes into him. And then it says from here, as we keep going on, at verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So here we go. Zechariah is in there doing his ceremony, praying. And then the angel of the Lord comes along, right? And this is the first time that anyone has seen an angel in this ceremony for 400 years. No one else has had any account of this. So this is the first. This is huge, right? You're sitting there. Of course, you would be afraid if you were visited by this angel because this isn't common. And so it turns out later on that it's actually 
the angel Gabriel, which is the same one that visited Daniel. If you remember correctly, we just read Daniel not too long ago uh, to help him interpret his vision. And I'll read a portion of this. This is Daniel 8, 15 through 17. Uh, It says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood me before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understanding the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. So here we go. Daniel and Zechariah both have a vision from, or they both see Gabriel in person, and they both react the same way, out of fear. They both fall on their face, right? You see where the symbolism's going here. The Old Testament and the New Testament are colliding into one, which is super exciting because that's the whole thing. This is all about fulfillment of prophecy. And there's also a verse in verse 27 of Daniel 8 that says, And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. So even after seeing the angel of God, he stayed away for a while because he laid sick, which will be super important here in a minute when we come a little further. So as we go a little further down, we're now in Luke again. Uh, So after 11, we're in verse 12, and it says, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So he says, Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So this is interesting because most people would think that Zechariah was in the temple praying for a son, right? You would assume the reason why his prayer was heard was because he was praying for a son. But we forget that he was on duty. He, his mission was not to pray for a son. Rather, he was in there praying for the redemption of Israel. So when Gabriel comes and says, your prayer has been heard, he is not referring to the fact that he's going to have a son. He's referring to the process of redemption for Israel, right? So we're starting the lineage here. Like, yes, he is going to have a son, but at the same time, he's also going to be a lead into the redemption of this country that has needed the redemption. So here we are again. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, let's talk about John, right? John the Baptist is who we're we're referring to. This first one, Zechariah's child, will be John the Baptist. And if you are familiar with the Bible, you will know that John the Baptist is the one who baptizes Jesus with water, right? So he was intended to come before Jesus, only shortly, but his whole intention was to come before him. So it says, you shall call his name John, uh, which is translated from Yohanan, which means God has been gracious or God has shown favor. So in this particular case, God is showing favor and has been gracious to Israel, but then also to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're both old in their age, and they both 
have not been able to have children, and so now God is showing favor. So just in the name alone, John, God shows favor. And then it says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Both the personal delight of his parents and the public joy he would bring would come because of the inner greatness of his soul. Samuel's prophetic declaration that the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That comes from 1 Samuel 16, 7. Had stood for a thousand years. John the Baptist would have a great heart, and Jesus would later say of him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And that's Matthew eleven eleven, Luke seven twenty eight. There you go, there's two versions. Next to Christ, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son John would develop a soul second to none, not even Abraham, Joseph, or Daniel. So this particular person that is being born is, is kind of like the closest to Christ that we personally can come, right? Like he is he will have the soul that we all should desire to have. In verse 15, it says he must not drink wine or strong drink. Um, So Gabriel is instructing his parents to make sure that he grows up a certain way. Uh, Gabriel is saying that John would be a Nazarite. So if you remember in Numbers, remember we've kind of gone through the Old Testament a little bit. There's a lot of laws and stuff that goes on. So Numbers 6, 1 through 21 Uh, It kind of talks about this a little bit, but a Nazarite is a man who is set apart and devoted to God. So from birth, he'd be prepared for special service to God through special spiritual disciplines. He would never take strong drink, cut his hair, or touch a dead body, those kind of things, right? Um, So if you're looking at, you can go back to numbers and you can see how he was being set aside. His full intention was to be a Nazarite from birth. He was not to have any outside interaction other than spiritual interaction. So, we'll go a little further from here. Yeah, and here it says, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Uh, Because he was a Nazarite, the Lord's Spirit would fill him instead of things uh, that he had forgone. So, instead of being filled with drunkenness or wine, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, even even from birth, this particular man was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is huge. Um, So, this is a, what we're reading here is the beginning of something that was foretold in Malachi, right? Um, And actually, we'll read this line first, and then we'll read the other from there. So um, in 17, it says, And he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is Luke 17, which is almost verbatim, what happens at the end of Malachi. Remember, Malachi is the last prophet that we hear anything from. And these are the words of the Lord. It says, Malachi 4, 5 through 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn their hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land of the decree of utter destruction. So here we have in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, literally the same lines that we're seeing here in Luke 1 through 17. So these prophecies are being fulfilled, right? Gabriel is saying John will fulfill these prophecies, and then later on Jesus will fulfill prophecies as well. That's kind of where this whole thing is leading. Like Luke, Luke does a really good job of setting up both the birth of John and Jesus because there's so many things that were promised to us in the Old Testament 
And he does a really great job of pulling these all together and filling in this account so it makes sense of everything. So that we know through this period that we will be getting answers to the questions that were in the first thousand pages or however your Bible is laid out. So let's continue reading. We're going to read 18 through 23. And it says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So here we go. Zechariah is silenced, right? God silences him and says, you did not believe my words. You will be silenced. And he doesn't give him an end to this whole particular thing. He says, you, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. So until the whole thing comes to fruition, you will be silent, which means for the next nine months, you're not talking, right? So <clears throat> the reason why is because he asked this question, how shall I know this? For I am an old man. My wife is advanced in years. This question may not seem like anything strange, but we have to realize that Zechariah is a priest, right? Zechariah is familiar with the word of God. He has been brought up in a scholarly manner. So he knows what prophecies have already been fulfilled before. Uh, since he was acquainted with the scriptures, he should have known about the divine, intervention, divine interventions in the birth of Isaac and Samson and Samuel, right? So he should have known about these things. Um, and because, <clears throat> because he seems to have forgotten this or let this go, it, it makes his doubt even more of a big deal. So he's silenced. But being silenced isn't a total problem, right? He could have been he could have been evaporated off the earth, right? Like, we've seen signs where people have given offerings and they were not in the right train of thought and they were consumed with fire. So in this particular case, there was a little bit of grace that was extended to Zechariah. And instead of just dying on the spot or being consumed, he was silenced. And this is also essential because God still needs Zechariah, right? He still needs him to make something happen, right? He could have moved on to someone else, but he needs Zechariah for a reason. So he will be silent for the, for the rest of his days, for the rest of these nine months. But in this time period, there's something that he still needs to make him do. So in verse 24, it says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So what we're seeing is Elizabeth... Her curse has been lifted, right? Her curse was that she wasn't able to have children, which was, it was not a good reflection of the two of them. Even though they live righteously, you wouldn't be able to tell that because back in that time, if you live righteously, you were blessed, right? And, and the ultimate blessing is children. And in this particular case, they were not able to have children until this moment. So God has lifted her approach reproach and she realizes that God has blessed him 
So Zechariah's mute. He's out of the picture. Like he's helping conceive this child, but that's about it. Can you imagine going home, right, to your wife, and you've just had this divine intervention with an angel, right? You're seeing an angel, and then you go home and you're thinking, I have to make a child happen, but I can't tell her that I have to make a child happen. And so just the, uh, the sign language that must have been going on or what was going on in that house, I have no idea. But the point is, is it still, it still worked out somehow without saying a word, <coughs> which is also interesting because later on we'll see that she still wants to name the son John, but he's never told her, or we're not aware of any way that he has told her that the, his name needs to be John. So... There we go. Zechariah is silent. Elizabeth realizes that God has a plan for them, and they're moving forward, right? They're, she stays hidden for five months. And then we're going to move down a little further. So now we're going to meet a, another person. Her name is Mary. So in verse 26 is where we'll start here. I'll read like four or five verses and then go from there. So in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel has sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I'm going to stop right here first. So in the first line in 26, it says, in the sixth month, I just want to establish that first we are talking about in Elizabeth's sixth month. This is the sixth month of her pregnancy, right? So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel is now visiting another person, and this is Mary. So I, I was super interested in Mary. I looked a little bit up of her. Um, according to Apocryphal Gospel of the Birth of Mary, she was only 14, right? And the history of <coughs> Joseph the Carpenter states that she was only 12. Uh, so... That mixed within a lot of estimations from scholars, people who have searched all this stuff out. Uh, they assume Mary was, at most, a young teenager. So she was very young when she conceived Jesus. Because of her age and then the fact that she was a poor peasant girl from Nazareth, which was not a big city, it was a very rural environment, um, it was most likely that she was illiterate. So her knowledge of scriptures would have been limited to what she had memorized at home or heard in a synagogue. So we're seeing that Joseph and Mary are from very humble beginnings, right? They're both poor, illiterate, <laughs> kind of like the total opposite of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are of a priestly order and have been set aside and have been blessed, right? So these people are from humble origins. So there are two things that make Mary unique and a perfect candidate, right? First, there's Mary the Virgin, Right, we we hear see here to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was it was Joseph the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. So it kind of harps this point on several times in this that she, that she was a virgin. Uh, the virgin birth was essential to God's plan. It was a direct fulfillment of a prophecy given in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a, a fantastic book. We read it a few months ago. But if you want to reacquaint yourself with it, there's tons of prophecies of what, what's going to be fulfilled. But in Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. So there we go. Isaiah said it. God makes it happen. The second thing that makes Mary particularly interesting 
is who she is betrothed to. So when you're betrothed, you are uh, basically contractually obligated to marry someone, right? So she is in this arrangement with Joseph, the carpenter, and it is stated that he is a descendant of David. And that is key because there is a covenant that was established with David in 2 Samuel. Um, and actually, I'm going to read that. So in 2 Samuel 7, if anybody has an iPad or something that wants to read through there, uh, we'll kind of go through some of this. Um, what's nice is at the end of chapter 3 of Luke, uh, he gives us a complete breakdown of Jesus' genealogy from Jesus all the way to Adam. So we see how they've trickled through. But here, um, we'll see just a little a bit of the covenant to David, right? So in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, who I put away from you, before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here, God is setting up a, a straight-up covenant with David. And he's saying, from your lineage will come the Savior, right? It has to come through your lineage. So it's no coincidence that Mary is a, a virgin and that she is also betrothed to a man named Joseph, who just so happens to be of the lineage of David. So we'll continue on a little bit from here. So we'll read back in 28. So here's Gabriel, and he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. We'll stop here. In verse 29, her reaction is completely different than Zechariah's reaction. Zechariah fell down to his face in fear, whereas Mary was only troubled by his greeting which he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So she's troubled by this because she is a teenager. I don't think she completely understands the weight of what is going on just yet. I think she will later. But at this moment in time, an angel out of nowhere has appeared to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That's a pretty heavy thing to take on. So what we see here is first and foremost, her reaction is different because she is different. She's a little different than most people. She has this moment where she is being contemplative and she is meditating on the word of God. She's trying to figure out what it is that he means. 
So anyway, we continue on in 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of Man, Son of the Most High, and the Lord of God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So here we go. He's going to call his name Jesus. You're going, to, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and we're going to call his name Jesus. Jesus is from a Hebrew word named Yeshua, right? Uh, it's, or in English, if you were to translate it directly, Yeshua would, would translate into Joshua. And it means uh, the Lord has saved. Pretty literal, you know, like <laughs> the Lord is saved. So Jesus' name from his origin Yeshua means the Lord is saved. So here he is, from birth, the Savior. So Gabriel is telling Mary that she will conceive a son, who is the son of God, and he will fulfill prophecies and be the one that was promised to David that we saw in 2 Samuel. So her response, again, is a little different than Zechariah's from here. So she says in verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? So two different ways, right? Zechariah said, how shall I know this, for I'm an old man and my wife is an advanced in years, right? Zechariah answered with the question, which is, how will I know? What sign are you going to give me, right? And then, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced, so technically this can't happen, so there needs to be, like, he was doubtful, right? Mary, on the other hand, says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Rather than being doubtful, she is asking, how are you going to make this happen? I have no one that I am married to. Right at this moment, um, how will I conceive this child? So the difference, doubt, and then being inquisitive. They're, they're a little different, right? So he responds by saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So he explains to her how the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. And he's going to do it with the power of the Most High. It's going to overshadow her. And the child will be born holy from the Son of God. It will be conce- it's not going to be conceived through a sexual manner, but rather through the presence of the divine. So the word overshadow gives us a proper understanding because it used in the Greek Old Testament to describe God's presence in the sanctuary. So, um, for instance, when someone was in the sanctuary and they became stricken or if they were just taken over by the Holy Spirit, it was overshadowing. So you might even have an experience with this as well. If you first met God, you might have this like transformative experience where you were overshadowed, or like you just don't rem- you just remember intimate love, right? That's kind of what this is. So, in this particular case, this is not sexual. This is the Holy Spirit coming and imparting this inside of her womb. So there's no doubt that she felt it, right? Because we know all these other accounts of the Holy Spirit. She felt it. She knew it was happening. She knew what was going to happen. When exactly it happened, it doesn't say. But it's most likely sometime after the angel has departed from her. It's so, probably similar to the creation, too, when the Bible says the Spirit hovered over the right. waters. 
it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's like a fruition of the mm -hmm. creation story. So here he is creating, and, and in this particular case, the new Adam, right? Yeah. This is the new Adam coming. So it's, it's going to come not from dust, but rather from the Holy Spirit. So he's completely different. And in the beginning, we were dust and the rib of man. New Adam comes from the Holy Spirit. So here at the end, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your words. Mary's response is coming from a place of complete humbleness and faith. The word servant comes from the Greek word bondservant, which means a person bound in service without wages. So she's saying that she's tied to God and she is willing. And she's submissive. Submissive is like a dirty word in our culture right now. No one seems to really like that term. Uh, but what we have to learn from Mary is being submissive to God is the ultimate thing, right? This applies to men and women. It's not just one way or the other. Mary was the most blessed woman in the Bible because she got to carry the Son of God in her womb. And the only reason why is because she was submissive. She submitted to God before him. So it's super essential that, that we see that willingness. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, or I'm the bond servant. Again, I am humble before you. I am here to do your will. So uh, what's another interesting thing about Mary too, and this is, this you'll kind of see a little later, is Mary uh, is humble before God, and she is submissive before God, and allows this to happen. Not that she really has any particular choice in the matter, uh, but she allows it to happen. And then later on, she becomes submissive to Jesus as well. So to her own son that she bore, she later realizes, she, or she knows that he is the Son of God, and she is submissive to him also. This happens in Luke 8, 19-21, and then also in Acts 1, verse 14. We see that she's there praying at the same time when Matthias's lots were being thrown, right? And so we know that Mary is with them throughout the age. And you can even consider her a disciple, if you will. She's not mentioned with them all the time, but we know that there were several who, were, who also followed Jesus. And so we look at her as two parts, mother of Jesus, the man, but then also disciple of Jesus, too. So we'll continue going a little further, and we'll get down into this other part here. So... <clears throat> It says, we'll end it again one more time. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So now we're carrying on with the story. There was one key thing that he said a little bit higher up. He said, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. This is part of his way of basically saying, look, miraculous things happen. And also your cousin or relative, it says, Elizabeth is conceiving a son. So we know that he's also tied to John the Baptist through blood, essentially. So we're going to move down, and this is where Mary and Elizabeth see each other again. And this is super cool here. So in verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So just here in this moment right here, right, uh, Mary goes to visit Zechariah and Elizabeth, her, her relative. And when she arrives there, John, the baby that is in the womb, John the Baptist, starts leaping with joy because he realizes that in Mary is the Son of God. So from the womb... 
he sees and notices the presence of God, which then causes Elizabeth to be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> this is a, so imagine this baby jumping and kicking around just with the power of God in him, and then naturally you're going to get the, the, side, the byproduct of that. And so now Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, And she acclaimed with, exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So a couple things, right? When the Holy Spirit hits you, (laughs) as we'll see later on, uh, especially in Acts, Things happen and people start prophesying, right? In this particular case, she is giving it this blessing. So she is filled with the Holy Spirit and now she is blessing. And it's almost like the Beatitudes. It's very reminiscent of like, blessed are those, right? So blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now what's interesting about this is Elizabeth and Zechariah are of higher stature than Mary. So... Well, in, by a, a typical societal standpoint, she doesn't have to address her from that standpoint. Like, it would be almost like if, if some older person, more stately person, acknowledges you as being higher than they are. Mary is a poor virgin girl from this little city, and she says, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So she's elevating her above herself. She recognizes that this person is carrying Jesus, carrying God inside of her, and no longer does her status matter to her. Also, it's a good time to go back where the angel said to Mary, you know, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Then the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. If she, the angel had stopped right there, she might have still been perplexed. But watch, the angel went on and gave her a little bit more information, said, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who has said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So the angel gave her a little bit more information that helped her build her faith. Now, my question is, did Mary already know that Elizabeth was pregnant? She knew here. Because that's where she travels, but I don't know if she knew before. I'm going to go with no. I don't know. We don't think she would have known. But think about it. The angel tossed out a little bit more information, and she immediately received it and believed it. And she knew they were old. She knew that her cousin was, you know. But that's cool because the angel went on and gave her a little bit more information. And then what did she do right after that, after she received it? She ran straight to yeah, so she's, she's going there for not necessarily to validate the claims of Gabriel. She's actually going there for a different purpose. She's yeah. spending time with two people that she is related to, and she is spending time to be acquainted in the Word. These two people are pre- priests and of a priestly order. So if anyone knows the Word and the laws and the commands, it would be their Zechariah and Elizabeth. That would be the perfect people to go to. But the best part in Elizabeth's proclamation comes from verse 45. And it says, And blessed is he, she who believed that there would be a fulfillment 
of what was spoken to her from the Lord, right? This is almost like a stab at her husband. Not directly, but she's saying, blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment and was spoken to her from the Lord. She is saying right here, you are blessed because you believe the words of God and you didn't need further proof or validation, right? You just asked how. That was it. How is this going to happen? Whereas my husband here so, was, was doubtful, and, and I was also doubtful because, I mean, if you had been as, as, as in age as she was, uh, you would probably um, feel the same way. Yeah. And so she's acknowledging the blessing that is upon Mary because it is a huge monumental thing. So now we're going to move into uh, verse 46 through 55. And this is uh, a song of praise from Mary. Uh, it's called the Magnificat, um, and, and, and some people sing it. You can sing it in Latin and stuff. I don't know how to do it, so I'm not, I'm not going to do it, uh, but I will read through it. Uh, but this is after she's spoken to Elizabeth, so now she, too, is like feeling that excitement, and so she proclaims to the Lord. So it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So this is, this is a, a, like the first hymn, essentially, in Luke. And there's a few. These are the things that people sing. But it's called the Magnificat. So I'm going to kind of break down a few things that happen here. Right? So Mary was then overcome with the Holy Spirit. She breaks out into a song of praise, which we call the Magnificat. One thing that happens. These passages are very similar and reminiscent of what Hannah uh, said after Samuel, her son, was dedicated to God. So if you go to First Samuel 2, 1, you'll see the very similarity, like it's very similar how it's laid out and what, what she says. So now we're seeing that Mary is not just this girl who doesn't understand scripture. Rather, she has some scriptural knowledge or the Holy Spirit is now talking through her and allowing her to say these things, right? So she is uttering scriptural language by using words which the Holy Spirit has already consecrated and used. And so it's just, it, it's kind of like, like us, right? We, we see Mary and we're supposed to, we see how the word of God is dwelling in her and coming out of her. We're also supposed to allow the word of God to come out of us. And so it's important for us to do what we're doing right here and to study these words so we know better. Um, so in, in Colossians 3.16, to back that up, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So that's a Pauline command right there. Uh, so then another thing that happens, uh, she shows deep humility. So in verse 48, she says, Humble estate of his servant. And she acknowledges her need for a savior. In verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She doesn't imply that she is sinless. She's not saying that she is perfect uh, or immaculate. Rather, she has come before God as a humble servant. So this is kind of the key theme, especially in in the Jesus era going forward. Uh, Those who come to him with humbleness are the ones he can do the most with. 
was exactly like Christ's message. Yeah. Pretty much. It's, it, it goes back to that like Beatitudes thing, right? Like mm-hmm. she's saying blessed again. And, and she's partially talking about me herself, but she's also talking about Israel as a whole, which is very similar. It's setting the precedent for what is to come from there. Um, let's see. Taking place in there. Yeah, so that, that's the interesting part is when uh, when Mary enters the house, the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. So before before she's even had the opportunity to say, "Hey, I'm pregnant with God's yeah, baby," yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, she knows because this yeah. this thing living inside of her is just going double time, right? The Holy Spirit is kicking in this one, which then sends her into a Holy Spirit, which then validates without words needing to be said. That's kind of the key to Elizabeth and Zechariah's story, right? A lot of things are falling into place without words needing to be said. Uh, so that's kind of the thing. Like, no one needs to tell these people because the Holy Spirit is living and breathing within, within them, right? So um, in verse uh, 47, it says, My soul magnifies the Lord. In verse 49, my spirit rejoices. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. So she's gracious for the gift that has been given to her. So she's not looking at this as like a burden. She's instead saying, this is a gift. I am taking this on. Um, We also see that she's aware of God's dealings with his people. So in verse 50, uh, to those who fear him. In verse 51 and 52, she knows that she is aware of God's covenant with Israel and how it's being fulfilled. So he has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Again, the word humble comes up again. Uh, in ver- and, and here's another part. In verse 54 and 55, she has a vast understanding of Bible promises. And it shows that she has remembered the promise that all nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham. It goes uh, back to the end of Luke 3. We'll get to this next time. where We'll go through the genealogy and we'll see that he is not only uh, coming from the lineage of David, but he's also coming from the lineage of Abraham and all the way back to Adam. So this is total ascension here. So uh, this last line in verse 56 says, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So Mary is now staying with them for the next three months, uh, which I would assume is probably to prepare herself physically, mentally, and spiritually for what was to come. I would go almost, I don't know women say it, mostly spiritually. Uh, so God has, has provided her family that she can go to and seek refuge in. And what's great about Zechariah and Elizabeth, once again, they were of priestly order. So they know the words, they know the laws, they know the commands. They can, they can fill in everything that she has yet to get from her own account. So we're going to move on a little further. Uh, and this is John's birth. So this is where John is born. This is verse 57 through 66, and we'll read some of this together. So it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. (laughs) Very prophetic, just straightforward. His name is John. Uh, And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, 
blessing God, and fear came on all of the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So, all right, where to start with this? Elizabeth gives birth, um, and instead of naming him the customary order, which at the time you would name uh, your son after his dad, that was just what you would do, uh, or a family member or relative, and she decides to name him John. Now, again, it hasn't been discussed whether or not Zechariah has revealed to her in any way, shape, or form that his name should be John. So this could be prophetic. This could be all Holy Spirit working here from there. Um, Anyway, the people who are around her are kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? Because this is not custom, right? So then they go to the dad, Zechariah, and of course... Uh, he validates his name. He just writes his name as John on a tablet, fulfilling God's command, and immediately he's able to speak again. Uh, and his first words were blessings to God, which are in verse 64. We'll, we'll see uh, these blessings in a minute. It, it kind of goes down to it in 67. Um, so after nine months of not being able to speak, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is no longer faithless, but full, a full unbeliever in the prophecies. Sometimes our suffering and our affliction can bring us closer to God, as was the case with both Zechariah and Elizabeth. They both suffered. They both had an affliction, right? One was unable to be pregnant for the entirety of her life and obviously suffered uh, from societal issues with that. And then Zechariah suffered for nine months of not being able to speak or communicate to anyone. And so in this time period... I'm sure he was forced to reckon with his doubt and unbelief. And so, through suffering and affliction, here he is, full-on Holy Spirit moment coming. It's coming out of that suffering. Uh, It says in verse 66, For the hand of the Lord was with him. Just as John was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit too, right? Uh, That's part of the new covenant that we have in Jesus. But before this, that was not one of those things that was normal. You weren't just filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. So uh, this is sort of the beginning. We're like laying out the beginning of this new covenant that is coming. And we're seeing it come to fruition in John. And so now we're moving into Zechariah's prophecy, which is also kind of a song as well, a hymn. Uh, It can be sung that way too. If you're interested, you can go on YouTube and you can look up the Magnificat. And you can also look up this prophecy and you can hear... Uh, some some monks reading along and singing and whatnot. It's pretty interesting. I uh, have not figured out how to uh, do Latin singing at this moment, so I'll just ex- I'll keep your, your ears safe from that. Uh, so let's read this together. In 67 it says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, here's the theme again, right? You, you get filled with the Holy Spirit, and here comes a prophecy. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he's talking about two things here. He's talking about the, the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of the redemption of Israel. And then he is also talking about Jesus coming and John, his son, and his role that he'll be playing. So, um, <clears throat> like the Magnificent, which is 46 through 55, the Benedictus begins with a word of praise. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For, the word for, indicates that all of the following, so all of 68 through 79, is the cause of Zechariah's praise. So he is praising for these things. He is praising because he knows that these things are coming to pass. Uh, he has visited and redeemed his people with the events in 5 through 67. So all this that has gone on, he, he has now had time to reflect on this. The Holy Spirit is in him, and he is full-on prophesying at this moment in time. Uh, so in 78, which also speaks of God visiting his people with the dawning of the sunrise from on high, that is with the coming of Christ, right? So the sunrise from on high is a reflection of the coming of Christ. So here's a few things that I'm going to point out a uh, little cross-references here that go on in this, because um, while there's plenty of things that Mary says that are worth noting and you can look up more, uh, Zechariah, being a priest, knows kind of all the, the right things to say, right? So he has been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is now speaking the best way he knows how, and so there's a ton of references to the Old Testament in this portion here. So in Luke one sixty nine where he says, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us. The horn <clears throat> is a symbol of animal strength. It refers both to Jesus and to David, right? In Luke 170, as he spoke from of old, emphasizes the fulfillment and continuity between the old and new covenants. So he's realizing the priests are the ones who've carried this tradition, and now the new covenants are coming from there. In Luke 1, 73 through 75, swore to our father Abraham, the content of the oath is given in verse 74 through 75, that is to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. Um, and then it, this portion ends at, at 75, so what's called the Benedictus ends at 75. And that is where he's prophesying of the things to come. And then the other part is about John in particular. Uh, so in 76 through 77, so read again, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. <clears throat> this knowledge, uh, which is brought by John the Baptist, prepares the way for the coming of Jesus. Such knowledge is not merely theoretical or cognitive, but deeply experiential, resulting in a fundamental change of heart and behavior. So um, salvation and forgiveness of sins, these are the things that only God can do, but they are coming through Jesus. So he's setting the passage from there. And then, uh, finally, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light is most likely a metaphor referring to the coming of the Messiah. And a few places that you can read about this would be Isaiah 62, verse 3, uh, Malachi 4, verse 2, and possibly Numbers 24 through 17. All right, so there's a few things you can go back on and check them out. Now, we'll end with verse 80, and this is where we'll conclude our segment for today, and then we'll go a little further from there. So we end with this passage. It says, The child grew and became strong in spirit. 
<clears throat> and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So we know that he's been set aside from birth as a Nazarite, and he's growing strong in the spirit, right? This whole entire time before he comes into public. So we know that he's set aside, and then he's be growing in his strength in the spirit. Now what's interesting about this particular phrase right here, and the child grew and became strong in the spirit, is we will see this again. And we will see it in chapter 2, verse 40, where it's talking about Jesus this time. And it says, And the child grew and became strong and filled with the wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. So we're seeing this sort of unfold, right? Like Jesus and John, we have one who's growing in the spirit, and then next we have one who's going to grow in the spirit and the word and the wisdom and the favor of God. It's the grace of God, which we will learn, continues, and constantly unfolds as we go along. So um, while we talk mostly about John today, it is essential to talk about John because when we look at the prophecies that were leading up to this, it's very easy to see that someone had to come before Jesus to prophesy about the things coming. Um, It's been 400 years, right, since anyone's heard anything. So it's essential for someone to prepare the way. And John does it greater than anyone else could. There is a little portion uh, in Malachi 3, verse 1. Which I'll just flip over there from, from here. Actually, the two, the last two parts of Malachi. So let me get there. Okay, so go to Zechariah and then Malachi, right? There should be a little section that says New Testament. It's the one right before it, right? So Malachi 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger and the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Right here, verse 3, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, we are seeing that God is saying he is sending a messenger before him, and he will prepare the way before me. So the last prophet that we know of that has any recorded evidence, Malachi, 400 years before, is foretelling not only of the coming of God, but also of the coming of the messenger before. And so John is essential because he is that messenger that comes before. So here is fulfillment. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger in the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And... Just for good measure, if you go to chapter 4, 5, and 6, it kind of repeats the same thing. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we read that earlier, and that is a direct comparison of what Gabriel tells Zechariah about his son in those first couple chapters there. So now we have John. Here he is. He is born, and he is preparing the way for our Lord.